Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Encounter Church. As uh, we just heard, fall launch is only uh, one week away. It's next weekend. It's going to be a huge party, a great opportunity for you to invite your one. Uh, Also, if you'd like to serve at the event, we have slots available. Just as like roaming greeters, maybe to staff a game. There's all kinds of ways to make a difference. You can sign up at EncounterChurch.org slash events. Uh, Today we're in part four of what's turned out to be a really, really fun and impactful series on the life and the ministry of Elisha in the Old Testament. The series is called Wild, and uh, the reason behind this series called Wild is, is that the life of following after God, the life of following Jesus is meant to be just that. It's meant to be wild. It isn't meant to be tame or subdued. It's meant to be outrageous. It's meant to be absurd at times even miraculous, as we're going to see today. We've been following along in the book of 2 Kings, following along Elisha the prophet in the Old Testament, and we've seen, uh, we've seen Elisha now burn the plows. We've seen him dig the ditches. We've seen him grab the jars. And today we're going to, today we're going to see him take a bath. Not literally. This isn't like bathing literally, as we said last week. Um, I think it's going to be something even more, more impactful than that. Against maybe my better judgment in preaching today, uh, I usually try to like create some kind of suspense or tension in the sermon. I just, I want to be, I want to be clear over clever today. So I'm just going to tell you the point and hope that you don't leave. If we could just lock the doors before, no, I'm just kidding. We don't do that. The point of today, it's three words. It's three simple words. What I'd like for you to take away from today is just these three words. Trust the process. Trust the process. That's all there is to it. Just, I would love for you and your relationship with God to walk away here with just this greater dependency to trust the process this much more this week. It's easy to do in some settings, to trust the process, right? I, I brought along with me um, one, of our, one of our many, many uh, Hogwarts Lego sets that we've got. We actually have the entire Wizarding World set up in my basement. And like Universal Studios, we charge $300 to come through. So... If you would like admission, just hit me up and, and we'll take you through. This is, just, this is just one of the many sets that uh, we've created. And the thing about building Legos, and I've done it for a little while now uh, with my kids, and then when they lose interest and move away, then it's just me building Legos by myself. And so I have uh, a little bit of area of expertise on this. It's easy to trust the process when I've got an instruction book that tells me every single step along the way. An instruction book that tells me where every single piece in the entire wizarding world goes and in what order. Like this book makes it so remarkably easy when I'm building. And it, and it, all of a, it starts to look like the thing that I am trying to build. And then I flip the page and then it has me start over completely <laughs> on a new section. It's easy to trust the process when I've been building and I have the manual right here in front of me. Friends, it's remarkably more difficult to trust the process when the thing that you're trying to build is a social life. I love the the meme floating around, like, can we get a few more sermons on the miracle of Jesus having 12 close friends in his (laughs) mid-30s? It's remarkably more difficult to trust the process when the goal at the end of the line that you've identified is someday I am going to be debt-free and I'm going to get to do the scream and I get to like experience 
not having the, the crushing weight of this mountain on my chest all the time, except for like the tool that you have to get yourself out, to dig yourself out of debt, is like a teaspoon. And it's this mountain that's sitting on top of your chest and makes it so you almost can't breathe. And it's like trying to move this mountain, a teaspoon of sand and dirt at a time. And you're going, I'm doing the budget thing. I'm trying to defer my own happiness. One purchase, one coffee, one lunch at a time. I'm trying to dig my way out. It's just how long am I going to have to trust the process? It's easy to trust the process when it's Legos and when there's an instruction manual. It's more difficult to trust the process when I'm trying to care for my parents. And they were the ones who told me about Jesus, and they were the ones that modeled him so incredibly well. And now I'm caring for them, and I'm watching as their health goes from bad to good to bad to worse. And it's starting to look like they're about to meet the Jesus that they told me so much about. It's more difficult to trust the process when you don't really know how it ends. Or worse yet, you kind of do know how it ends. And you're wondering why the process is there to begin with. I would like us to trust the process, but I'd like us to be real about what that entails. Uh, to help us know why we trust the process, how we can trust the process. I'd like to share a story with you from 2 Kings uh, chapter 5 in the Bible. We're phone-friendly, so you can look it up that way. The words are going to be on the screen, and I heard that there's also Bibles made out of paper, so you can find one of those as well and look it up. 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm just going to read a little bit, introduce some characters, and then we'll tell you a little bit more about those characters. Um, verse 1. Naaman was our first guy. Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of not Israel, king of Aram, modern-day Syria. He's a great man. Can I hear can you say great man with me? Great man. You got to kind of like puff out your chest a little. He's a, he's a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier. He's a great man and a valiant soldier. And every time we say this, he's a great man and a valiant soldier. He's a great man who did great things. Actually, the Lord did those great things through him, but that's kind of beside the point this morning. He's a great man with a great resume. He's a great man with great victories. He's a great man with a great amount of influence, with a great amount of wealth, with a great amount of friends, with a great amount of status. He's a great man with great things. He was very, very accomplished. He's a valiant soldier. Next line. But he had leprosy. Naaman was a great man. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. But there was a problem. I'm not going to show you any pictures about like what leprosy was like in the Old Testament and, and some of the effects that the disease has. I already brought Harry Potter into the church. I don't want to give you another reason to leave. <laughs> We're not going to do that thing, rest assured. But, but I just want to like, maybe you don't know. And to dial the rest of us in, leprosy is this awful disease where it kind of like, 
it kills you from the outside in. It starts with a, a spot, like a red spot, and the red spot turns white, and then the white spot grows, and then your hair, your fingernails starts to, starts to come apart, and then like extremities, like, like toes and fingers themselves and arms, it kills you physically from the outside in. But the way the authors in the Bible talk about leprosy, and even sources outside of the Bible too, the way that the culture, the way that the people spoke about leprosy, it's almost as if the the emotional, the mental, the social impact, the spiritual impact of leprosy was felt even more deeply than the physical impact. Because while this was happening, and sometimes it was a years-long process, while this would happen, People would identify you as somebody with that contagious disease, and they put you on the outside. And so you're hanging out in like this, this leper's corridor, out of the city, out of away from people, no status, no influence. You could imagine what this would do to a guy like Naaman, who was a great man with great influence and great status and great wealth, and he got invited to some great parties, I'm sure. And then a spot shows up that doesn't go away. In fact, it gets worse. It gets white and it starts to grow and it starts to take over. And I don't know like how the spot started. We don't ever find out where it was. But I just imagine he went about doing what we do. He tried to cover that spot up and try to hide that thing for as long as he possibly could. And maybe for a second time this morning, against my better judgment, I'm going to share a saying with you that I heard once along the way, kind of a preacher's trope. And I just, I think it's helpful, so I want you to know it. So don't write this down, please. And we'll delete this one accordingly soon afterwards. But, but the saying goes a little bit like this. All of us, like Naaman, all of us have two eyes and two ears. All of us have a mouth, a nose, and a butt. <laughs> like Naaman, all of us, two eyes, two ears, two nose, and a butt, we've got some kind of leprosy. We've got something that separates us away from the community. We've got some element. Maybe it's a defect of our character. We've, we've got something that we wish nobody else would ever find out about. We've got some defect that we're carrying around with us all the time. And the more we get to know Naaman, the more I think you're going to like Naaman, because we really are Naaman. Like, you, you've met this guy before. You've met him in the mirror this morning when you were brushing your teeth, getting ready to come to church. Like, we are Naaman. And like Naaman, all of us, two eyes, two ears, a nose and a mouth, and a butt. We're valiant soldiers. We've got our own little resume that we keep. We do well. But we all have a but. She is so remarkably great at caring for other people. But she is awful at caring for herself. He is successful at work in every possible way. It's like whatever he does, it, it, it turns to gold. But he can't find happiness. He can't hold on to contentment even for a moment. He's a great salesman, 
but he has a teenager. I don't even need to finish that one. It's like fill in the blank. I get it, right? So great, so much going. He is kind, he is patient with clients, with customers, with coworkers, with, with everybody. Just Jesus embodied incarnate. But when he comes home, it's a whole different story. We're talking about processes. We're, we're talking about trust. We have to recognize uh, the same lesson, the same truth that Naaman recognizes, which is the difference between religion and gospel. Yeah, and I just I want to make this abundantly clear uh, because what religion does is what Naaman did his whole life. What religion does is tries to cover our butts. <laughs> like for Naaman, I got to imagine it's physical. Like he's trying to actually cover up his deformity he's deficiency he's trying to to hide it i think he's the guy that like wears the turtleneck in the summertime in the desert because he's like i don't want anybody to see my spot that turned from red to white he's the guy still wearing the n95 because he's like actually like there's this thing right like underneath the mask and i don't want anybody to see that now and so how long can i go to try to cover my butt leprosy to try to cover my deficiency my deformity See, that's like religion is to try to like cover it up, like try to hide it from others, maybe like coming to church and like get a little forgiveness, at least enough to get me through the seven days until I can get a little bit more forgiveness than on the weekend. This is like religion. But the gospel says, no, no, no. Gospel is not trying to cover your butt. What gospel says, it's time to strip naked and to swim in some muddy water. Again, not literally. Let's continue on in the story. We go to verse 2. Verse 2 says that now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. Naaman got his wife, and then a, a servant girl that is for Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria. Taking notes in the Bible, just kind of underline a prophet that's in Samaria. We're going to come back. He would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and he told him what the girl from Israel had said. And this is a little bit beside the point, but I just love that Naaman hears this and he does something about it. He went. He didn't, he didn't hear about this, uh, this potential healer, this prophet, Elisha, as we're going to find out in Israel. He didn't hear about this and, and understand. Uh, he, he didn't hear about this and memorize those words and cherish them. He didn't underline them in like a color-coded Bible kind of thing. He didn't hear these words and commit them to memory in both Hebrew and Greek, depending on the translation. No, no, no. He heard these words and he acted. Like if there's going to be a, a blessing that Naaman experiences by the end of this story, it's not going to be because he heard it and he understood, but because he acted and he obeyed. He did something. He got moving. So he goes to the king, and the king says, verse 5, By all means, go, the king replied. In fact, <laughs> do you want better? I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, uh, taking with him 10 talents of silver, a tremendous amount, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 sets of clothing. We're not going to do the conversion, but maybe $1.2 million worth of goods. 
I don't know, my commentaries are from when I was in seminary. They're like 100 years old and inflation has been rampant, right? So like I have no idea how much that's worth. Can we just agree? It's a lot. Like he goes with a ton of hardware in tow because he's, he's going to do what great men do, what great women do. He's going to go right to the top and try to buy himself a healing. Verse 6, the letter that he took to the king of Israel, hang on, I, I thought he was supposed to go to the prophet in Samaria. Anyway, he's at the king of Israel, and he goes, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. This whole thing is like a bad game of telephone. You know that game? You can like play all the time, right, with kids. And maybe it's like around the table, dinner time. Maybe it's in a classroom when you got like 20 kids all together and you start off and it's like, uh, I had a chicken sandwich for lunch. And it's like, she's in cancer treatment today. And you're like, Wait, what, how did that happen? Like, what was the thing? And then I was always the kid that would like intentionally mess it up along the way. And I thought it was so funny to have it something come out. And everybody laughs, so it's victimless crime, you know. But then the teacher is like, let's do a fun game now. Let's whisper back, you know, what the person told you. <laughs> And then it, it landed on me every single time. So I haven't learned my lesson. I still think it's hilarious to make it up, but you're probably going to get busted every time. It's not too, totally beside the point. What I'm just saying is, it's interesting to note in the story that the, that the servant girl says, hey, go to the prophet in Samaria. And Naaman kind of interprets that as the king in Israel. Why? Once again, this is what great people do. Great people go right to the top. Why would I go to a prophet? Why would I go to the guy in Samaria when I could go to the king? I mean, I'm gonna work, I'm gonna work my contact list. I'm gonna name drop. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show up with some hardware. I'm gonna show up with some gifts. This is how people relate to one another. And so why would it be any different to try to relate to God? See, his, his misunderstanding is that he thinks the God of Israel, the God of you and I today, he thinks this God is just like every other God, which is just like people. He's about to get a rude awakening. Verse 7, as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, am I God can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? Everybody knows there's no cure for this thing. There's no doctors. There's no treatment. There's no essential oil for putting on that spot to make it go away. How is he trying to pick a quarrel with me? Kind of the subtext is I can't win in a fight with Aram. I'm done. It's unusual response. I mean, you'd think he'd just be like, I, I can't help you, bud. It may be time to go home and see somebody else. It's unusual of a response. And I think part of, part of the reason why the king reacts as he does is he knows he's powerless. And he also knows that Naaman doesn't think that he's powerless. Because Naaman comes into this thing with an understanding that your God is probably just like every other God. And so if I come with gifts in tow, and if I come as an important person, if I come as a great man, then you, 
your God is going to do for me what I want him to do for me. Like he's got this understanding of God that sometimes secretly I think like we all have of God, that if you like pull the right levers, God is going to have to do what you want him to do. Like if you show up with gifts in hand, or maybe if you show up with obedience, and like I, I did everything right. I lived my life as best as I possibly could. You know, I didn't lie, murder, cheat. I didn't do any of these bad. I didn't even do the, the not so bad things, right? Like the white lies, the little stuff, the respectable sins. Remember that series? I didn't even do that stuff. I check, keep my anger in check. It's only a holy anger, like Dirk said so, like all this sort of stuff. I'm good. So now God has to be good to me, right? What Naaman is doing is he's expecting a tame God, a God that can be put in our debt a God that can be manipulated, a God that can be controlled. He is not expecting a wild God. He is not expecting a God who will not be privatized to just kings and important great men and women like Naaman. He shows up and he finds a God who will not become a debtor to anybody and in fact puts others in his debt and then forgives them like a God like that. I mean, what do you... What do you do with a God like that? The king says, okay, misunderstanding cleared up. You got to go see a prophet. You got to go see Elisha. I'll tell you where you can find him. So Naaman, verse 9. Naaman went with his horses and his chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. And I just imagine, like, it's a little house, right? Uh, it, it's just a, it's a little shack. It's not the palace that he went to first. It's not by a long shot. Verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, a messenger, can you believe that? Like the, the guy, right? the, the valiant soldier, the general name of the, the great man. He pulls up this little house and, and the prophet doesn't even come out. He just sends a messenger. I love it. And he just say to him, all right, uh, go wash yourself seven times. That seems arbitrary. Okay, in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Period. Full stop. That's all the instructions that he gets. Seriously? Seven times. In the Jordan. And he's like looking at the Jordan. And it's a little bit like how I look at the like Placer Creek, you know? I was on a bike ride with my kids, and we took like this offshoot kind of thing. I thought it was a trail. It was not the trail. We show up, and there's, and there's like... There's like tents and this homeless encampment and a little creek like right next to it. And I'm like, let's go back around. Turn it around. Let's get out of here. Don't get off the bike. Let's go. And I'm like, the instruction is to like bathe in there. In the, jo the Jordan River. Uh, Jordan River, elevation change, uh, 2,380 feet. It's water going. It's churning the dirt and the silt over. It's not a clear river. The riverbed is gypsum. It would flood and then recede, and the flooding where the water was would leave this like salty residue on the banks of the river because of the high uh, salinity, the high uh, gypsum content in the, in the river. You would go into the Jordan River, and you would exit that particular river dirtier than when you went into it in the first place. Come on, man. The Jordan River? You've got to be kidding me. Seven times? So Naaman did what great men do. He went away angry. And he said, I thought, hold on to that, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. I thought 
that there was going to be this great show. I thought that there was going to be this huge demonstration. I thought he'd call on the name. I thought he would wave his hand over the spot, cure me of my leprosy. I thought there was going to be a wave. I thought there'd be crowds. I'm a great man. Aren't not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, where I'm from? I thought these were, aren't these waters better than Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? I mean, if we're talking water quality, we can beat Plaster Creek, right? Like we can do better than the Jordan River, I thought. I thought. We're starting to get to the heart of it, right? And the heart of it is not a skin deep issue. The heart of it is what Naaman, and by extension, you and I, what I thought. How often have those two words stood in the way of your healing, of your recovery, of your great work? What I thought and what I held on to and what I pushed for. I thought the job was mine. I thought he was the one. I thought I'd be further along in my life or in my career than this. I thought I would have this nice little family and we would gather together for these nice little family pictures and I thought she would go here and I would go here and somebody would make a joke and then we'd do a silly one and I, I, thought, it would be, I thought it would be great. And apparently nobody's listening to what I thought. But I hang on to what I thought, even, even, though we, even though we know. Like God points it out, like God tells us. He says, are not my thoughts so much higher than your thoughts? Are not my ways so much higher than your ways? And, and he, he, he gives us kind of this distance metric uh, that, that he puts on it. Our, just as heaven is from the earth, <laughs> so... My thoughts are above your thoughts. My ways above your ways. Yet we hang on to what I thought. And when we hang on to my thought, next line, he turned and he went off in a rage. Period. It could end there. And I love this little quote by an author, uh, Brenning Manning. He says that if great trials are avoided, great deeds remain undone. If we leave the process based on what I thought, great deeds remain undone. But, but Naaman, Naaman didn't deserve friends like this. <laughs> Naaman's buddies came around him. Verse 13, Naaman's servants it said to him, uh, my father, not his actual father, just uh, an expression. If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Like, hey guy, friend, if he told you to climb a great mountain like Mount Everest, would you do it? And Naaman's like, well, yeah, I'm a great man. Mount Everest is a great mountain. I'm going to climb it. It's a great thing. Let's go. How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Like, that's it. 14. So? (laughs) Shrugs his shoulder, and he went down, and he dipped himself. He dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. Seven times. 
just like what was expected. Not once, not twice, two, three, four, seven times he's instructed to dip himself in some muddy water. He almost, almost went away unhealed because he was willing to be unhumbled. There's this spot on his skin that he came for, and God was like aiming for this different spot. He dips himself down one, two, three, four, and he doesn't stop. And I guess that's the part that I want to like really, really hang on to, really zoom in on to, because that's, that's our foothold for this morning. That, that's what we're going to, that's our takeaway for today. Uh, not six times, seven times. I can't prove this. I don't know exactly how the story went, but I've read much of the rest of the Bible, and I just got a sense that the first time that he dipped, I don't think anything happened. I think he went down, he came up, and he's like, yep, nothing. Exactly what I thought. It's a dirty river, probably even dirtier. But I think he looks at it and goes, I mean, I'm already wet, so I might as well go down one more time. And so it's the second time. And then he's like, still nothing. Third time, fourth time, fifth time. I think he goes down that sixth time. And when he came up, I don't think that there was any difference on his skin at all. I think God wanted to just hold him in the process because he wanted him to to hold with him the person of God outside of the blessings of God and to hang with the entire process through. I think God wanted him to say, listen, dude, I want you to trust the process. So he dips on that sixth time. If he would have quit there, I don't think he would have gotten to see what happens at the seventh time. I think some of us want to quit. We want to be done. We're sick of this process. And if you are on the edge of burning out on that ministry that burned, that once burned brightly in your heart, you don't get to see what happens when you raise up that seventh time. When you don't get the affirmation and the confirmation in whatever it is that you're putting yourself out there to do, and you're sticking with it and sticking with it. If you stop now, you don't get to see what happens when you come up out of that water that seventh time. Trust the process. God is stretching you, and God is growing with you. He wants to remain with you. He comes up out of the water that seventh time, and we read that as the man of God had told him, his flesh was restored And he became clean like that of a young boy. A young boy. I think he's talking about the the quality and the softness of his skin. I think the author of 2 Kings is talking about a much deeper quality as well. I think the author of 2 Kings is also saying, it's like he came up out of that water the seventh time, and not only was his skin the quality of a young boy, his heart and his faith was that of a young child trusting the process no matter what, because my heavenly father told me so, and that's enough for me. See, what he left with was something so much deeper than what he came for. When you're in the process of of building and constructing, and I'm telling you to trust the process, you know, it's possible that God is building something in you that's not what you came for him to build, but it doesn't mean that he's not at work. Trust the process. He goes down the sixth time. He comes up the seventh time. 
five, six, seven. Nothing happens. Seventh time, everything happens. You guys know bamboo? The Chinese, Chinese bamboo? Nobody, like who knows bamboo? I don't know. It's in like the wood flooring stores. You read a little bit more about this. Bamboo comes from this like nut that gets planted in the ground, a bamboo nut. It goes in the ground. For five years, nothing. You water it, you fertilize it in the correct amounts every single day for five years. It doesn't do anything. But on five years in a day, you start to see something. It's tiny. It's almost nothing. Just breaking up off the ground. This is taking forever. By the time you see the bamboo plant breaking up out of the ground after five years and one day, it will grow 90 feet in six weeks. That's it's over two feet a day on average that this plant grows. Five years of nothing. Two feet a day for growing. Of course, it wasn't nothing. It looked like nothing. Five years of root development. Five years of nutrient gathering. Five years of getting stronger and stronger every single day so that it's ready to shoot up two feet a day. Trust the process. He has you in development. You can lean on him. One of my pet peeves is when I say that I'm going to see a movie or it, it's on my watch list, it's, it's queued up for me on Netflix, like I'm, I'm going to get there, and somebody's like, oh yeah, he dies in the end. I'm like, come on, man. How can you tell me Top Gun ends that way? I'm just kidding. I just, that's not, that's not a thing at all. I just, you know, when some, right, you just had that experience. When somebody just tells you something that you were going to go see, that you were going to watch, it's the, it's the worst. Like, I'm going to go see, yeah, he doesn't get the girl. They lose the championship. I, like, whatever the thing is, it's a pain when somebody tells you, right? Because you go to a movie, you go to a movie not to find out how it ends. That's what Wikipedia is for. You go to a movie for the plot. You go to a movie to experience the tension. You go to a movie to experience the struggle along with the characters on the screen. I think for God and for us, it's very much the same way. You know that if it was just about the outcome for you, you would be in heaven right now. You wouldn't be here. When I sit down and when I build Legos with my kids, or more often than not, when I find myself building Legos alone, when I finish the Lego set, I put it on the shelf and I start building the next one. The plot is the point. The process is the point. And you have a guide who can take you every step of the way. Trust him. Church, I'd like to offer you an invitation to trust him. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate uh, communion together, and it's going to be different. Uh, we haven't done communion this way outside of special seasons like Good Friday uh, in a very long time. 
I think now's the time. And I think now's the special season. Uh, in just a moment, after I pray, I'm going to invite you to come forward during this last song. Uh, we have bread, we have juice. You're going to come forward and you're going to hear the words, the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. This is an invitation for those of you who have walked with Jesus for a long, long time and you're in the process. This is an invitation to receive yet another meal at the table that Jesus has set for you. Spiritual nourishment for your soul for today and maybe a little more. For some of you, and this is the first time ever that you've been invited to come up and to sit at the table that Jesus has set for you. And it doesn't matter if you're brand new to encounter. It doesn't matter if you're brand new to church in general. Jesus has set the table for you. If you're ready to trust the process, if you're ready to say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. Come to the table. Enjoy the bread and the juice. And then go to the prayer table and to tell them, I just took communion for the first time or for the first time in a very long time and we would love to celebrate with you. If you're caught in a struggle, if you're stuck in a process that you cannot see or claw your way out of, and honestly, if you're like, I don't even know if I am trusting the process all that well, come to the table. You need strength for the journey, don't you? And then go to the prayer table. You can share what that process is. You can just say there's a struggle, there's a process, I don't want to talk about it, and they're going to pray for you. And they're going to praise for you even before we get to see what God does in the process because faith works that way. So church, I'd like to invite you to stand up, Fulton Heights, stand up wherever you're watching from, online, coffee, shop, uh, in your living room, back deck. If you're driving, this is an excellent time to pull over. We're going to trust the process together as a community and come forward and be fed and nourished at the table. The words that Jesus said when he instituted this, he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the blood of my new covenant. Do this and remember me. For every time that you eat this bread and drink from this cup, church, we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ until he comes again. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. I'm going to pray and invite you to come forward at any point during this last song. Jesus, you have acted so incredibly gracious to us. You have been so kind. You have been so generous. God, you have walked with us through processes that we didn't deserve. God, you have guided us in a way that we didn't merit. Give us the strength today, the nourishment today to remain hopeful, to remain trustful, to remain and abide in you, Jesus. God, I pray for someone today who's just running on empty and is having a hard time believing that 
that you know the instruction booklet of how life is supposed to turn out. I pray for somebody who's been just trying to cover their hind parts this entire time, just to try to hide the shame from everybody else, hide the shortcoming from everybody else, hide the sin from everybody else. Jesus, you don't work that way. You're inviting us to strip down and bear our soul so that you can look at us as we really are and to call us beloved child. Jesus, it's in your love and it's in your grace that we pray. Amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.